about uh, 15 years ago, July, I, I, I moved down here from, uh, from Virginia. And one of the first things, uh, there's a lot of things that was, uh, was different about uh, Orlando than uh, from Virginia. One of the things that uh, we don't have four seasons really down here, uh, which was okay. I think, you know, we expected that. I expected that. But uh, two of the unexpected uh, challenges, I think, were the two of the things that, that really uh, kind of caught me off guard, uh, especially during my first few weeks down here, was I was amazed at how many lizards there are in Orlando, just crawling around everywhere. They, one of them got into my apartment, and I was flipping out, right, flipping out because I didn't know how to get it out. I sprayed it with Raid until it died, and then I swept it into a dustpan and, and threw it out. Lizards were one thing, but the other thing, I remember counting the first 17 days that I was here in Orlando, it rained, right, 17 days in a row. And for you, if you grew up here, if you've been here for a long time, you're like, that's nothing, but for me, I'm not used to it raining more than like two days, right, three days in a row. But 17 days in a row, it rained. And some of them were not just normal like rain that, that falls. I mean, we're in the middle of hurricane season from May until October. Do you know May to October is hurricane season down here? That's like pretty much half of the year. And I came right in the middle of hurricane season. So there was rain. And, and some of it is not just like this soothing, refreshing rain kind of noise that you play on your sound machine so that your kids could go to sleep. It's like torrential, like apocalyptic, go build your Noah's Ark kind of rain that happened, thunderstorms and lightning and all of this craziness. And I was a little bit taken aback by all of the rain and all of the thunder and all of the storm that greeted me when I first moved down here to Orlando. And I remember then in 2004, uh, three hurricanes in a row, if you live through this, Charlie, Francis, and Jean that just kind of destroyed our city in a lot of ways. And I remember the first one, I was living in apartments. So I didn't care if there was damage to the apartment. I, I didn't own the place or anything. So uh, my friend Cliff, who was also um, from Virginia, Cliff and I were sitting in my apartment uh, watching, looking outside over the fountain in the little pond in our apartment complex. And we were like so excited. We're like, yeah, we want to see like uh, there was a movie called Twister, which is about a, a, a hurricane chasers or tornado chasers. And we were I, I think we we're expecting something like that. We we're waiting for like cars to start flying around and for uh, for for cows to to be thrown into the water, and stuff like that. And nothing like that happened. The trees just kind of danced a little bit and all kinds of wind and. It was pretty crazy stuff, but I remember thinking about that and saying, wow, being in awe of the power of the storm. Uh, when I was little, uh, I, I remember there was a time, and this kind of scarred me for a long time. I don't like this is for some reason, or for this reason, I don't like carrying umbrellas around. I would rather just put a, 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 a jacket on with a hood and just try and brave the rain, no matter how hard it's coming. One time when I was little, uh, there was this heavy, heavy rain that was coming down, and it was windy and all of this uh, crazy stuff was happening in the storm, and I had an umbrella, and I was holding it. And you ever have this experience where it's so windy that the wind blows your umbrella the other way, and it flips the other way around? Right? That happened, and I was so scared. I was like, what in the world is happening? I was completely at a loss of control. I didn't know how to bring the umbrella back down. I was crying. I, mean, I, was, I was little at that. I was only like 19, but I was crying really hard. <laughs> uh, elementary school. I was crying and I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And so my mom was like yanking the umbrella down. I was scarred by the power of a storm as a young child. These days, I don't know what you think about storms, 
But in the ancient Near East, when people would write about storms in poetry or in literature, storms were demonstrations of the power of the gods. The fact that we are not in control. Water always symbolized chaos, always symbolized confusion, always symbolized the loss of control. And so whatever God was over in charge of the waters was seen as one of the most powerful gods. And Psalm 29 is a psalm for Orlando. It's a perfect kind of a psalm for when you're sitting on your porch or you're looking out the window and there's a massive thunderstorm going around. Because according to the writers of Scripture, a storm is indeed the fingerprint of God, the hand of God, but it shows his control over all of the storms that might come. I want to read from Psalm 29 today. I actually thought about praying that while I'm preaching, a ferocious thunderstorm would come to be the perfect illustration of Psalm 29. But I didn't want it to because I didn't want the power to go out and we'd be like, oh, flipping out and the air conditioning would go out worse than it is. And that would be kind of disastrous. And so I said, I'm not going to pray for it to rain and storm and thunder. But the next time you sit in the midst of a thunderstorm, I hope and pray that you'd be reminded of Psalm 29 and what its truths tell us about God, about us, about nature, about all that is in life. Psalm 29, this is the word of God. It's a psalm of David. And he says, Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. That's a call to worship. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. This is God's word. This is a psalm of glory, a psalm of thunder, a psalm of the storm. In verses 1 and 2, it says, Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Literally translated, if you have a different version, you might see it says, O heavenly ones. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Uh, in verse 10, says the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. And verse 11, the Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. So what do we see? In verse 1, the announcement is made in heaven. In verse 11, the Lord God meets with his people to give his people what we need. Psalm 29 begins in heaven. It ends on earth. And it goes through a storm in order that what we need could be given to us from God in heaven. 
And so the storm is important because in it, we see the provision of God for what we need to live on a day-to-day basis. This is a psalm of the storm. It's a psalm for our city, the lightning capital of the world. (laughs) Florida is the lightning capital of the United States. This is a psalm uh, for our city. So what do we see? The psalm of glory. What do we see? The first thing that I want to point out, the first thing is whatever is weightiest in our lives, is what we worship. Whatever is weightiest, meaning like uh, it, it has the most weight, whatever is weightiest in our lives is what we worship. How do you know what you worship? It's not by what we sing. Right? We say this all the time. It's not by what we say we worship. It's by the thing that is weightiest in our lives. What do I mean by that? Verses 1, 2, 3, and 9, you see this word glory. Okay, Verse 1, ascribe to the Lord Almighty ones, ascribe to the Lord glory. Verse 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. And then jump to the end of verse 9. In his temple, all cry glory. Psalm 29 is a psalm of the storm, but it's also a psalm about glory. About what we put our glory in, what we glorify. The word glory, okay, I just want to give a few thoughts about glory in this first thought. That whatever we, we think is most weighty is whatever is weightiest in our lives is what we worship. Few thoughts about glory. The word glory translated literally means weight. Not like hold up, wait a minute, but weight, like heaviness. So when you say someone is glorious, you're saying that someone is weighty, that someone's presence is heavy in my life. So you see, whatever is heaviest in our lives is what we are ultimately worshiping. So if you think about this, okay, let's just, uh, let's just make sure we're on the same page. An elephant is weighty. If you're using the ancient language, an elephant has more glory than an ant. Okay, we understand that, right? Because we're talking glory being weight. Um, a sumo wrestler, we're, we're watching the Olympics. A sumo wrestler has more glory than a four-foot-something gymnast. Because glory, we're talking about weight, right? Heaviness. The first thought that we're understanding is that weightiness has to do with glory. Glory has to do with weightiness. The second thought that I want to bring, and this is not on your outline. This is still part of the first thought. So don't think, oh my God, we're going to be done in like 10 minutes. We're not. The second thing about glory is that the things that are more glorious will always displace the things that are less glorious. Heavier things will always displace less heavy things. So you're sitting on a cushion bench, right? Long bench, and you're like 85 pounds. You're sitting, and then a 500-pound sumo wrestler comes, and he sits right next to you, and he plops himself down. When he sits on that, you're going to jump up because of the force of that person sitting next to you. Weighty things, heavier things will always displace the less heavy things. A bowling ball, okay? Some of our, our, our guys went bowling on Saturday. Right? A bowling ball, okay, is heavier than the pins that it strikes. So when a bowling ball full of glory comes rolling down the lane and it hits against something that is less glorious, then the thing of greater glory is going to displace the things that are less glorious. This is a simple idea. I learned this when I was in high school, when I was in, uh, in my youth group days. After Sunday service, there was a school right behind our church. 
and there was a big field, and so we would play football. All right? Our church was pretty good. We had about 200 in our youth group, and uh, a few of our guys played varsity football. And so uh, I didn't. I was about 130 pounds, dripping wet with boots on. And so we were playing football, tackle football, mind you. And uh, we had this guy in our, uh, in our youth group named Yong Hyun Kim. He was six foot four, 250 pounds. He was an offensive lineman from Marshall High School, went on, uh, played at Brown University. Um, he was all, uh, all met. So met means a metropolitan area, D.C., Maryland, uh, Virginia. He was all met as an offensive lineman. Uh, I cut out the article because he was a friend of mine, and the article said uh, his coach said he's the best offensive lineman I've ever coached in my life. Right? So an offensive lineman playing with other football players is, is good, but an offensive lineman playing against like people like us, that's no match. That's silly. And so he wouldn't play offensive line. He would play whatever, quarterback or something, just so that he didn't break anybody. But would always get to the point where we've been playing for like forever and it's like time to go and our parents are calling us and it's starting to get dark. Uh, this is what happens in a pickup game. Usually when the game is tied or it's at the end of the game and, you know, there's no, there's no winner, you always say, what do you always say? You say, next touchdown wins. Okay, next team to score wins. And so uh, the play, we always knew what the play was going to be. Young's on the other team. They say, just give the ball to Young and let him run people over. <laughs> They're going to win. They're going to go home happy. We're going to have to buy them the Gatorade. And so... Playing football, the last play of the game, this one particular time, 130 pounds, 250 pounds. He's like twice the size of me. The play is called hike. They get the ball. They give it to Young, and he's running. Like, he looks really angry. Like, we're friends, but he looks really angry. This is, like, called intimidation. And so he of greater glory is running right at me who has the lesser glory. And I'm thinking to myself, what does he want? Why does he look so mad? Why is he running towards me like that. I think I know what he wants. I think he wants to get behind me to get to the line which represents the end zone. Right? That's what he wants. I thought to myself, but why is he running at me like that? Said, because I'm standing in the way of his path to get to where he wants to go. So in my mind, I've got this option. I got down in my stance, ready to tackle him. And I thought to myself, hold on, this might not be the best idea. I thought to myself in that split second, he can either run around me or he's going to run right through me. And being at 250 pounds, running at the miles an hour that he's running, he's not going to be able to stop. And so I figured I might as well just give him what he wants. So he's running towards me. I got in my stance and then I kind of did a ole, 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 ole. And then he ran. And the guys were like, why didn't you stop him? I was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That which is greater, has greater glory, will always cause the things of lesser glory to get out of the way. So let me ask you a question about glory. What are the things in your life for which you rearrange your schedule? You rearrange your life. Right? The things that you give yourself to. The things that are of weightiness. The most heavy things in your lives are the things that are most glorious. And at the end of the day, that's really what we worship. And no matter what we say, no matter what we sing, you've got this choice. Okay, Sunday morning, we got to come to church. But my friend says, let's go watch a football game. Which one moves out of the way? It's the one that you have given greater glory to. You want to go to house church, but your friend says, let's go watch a movie. Which one do you do? Which one moves out of the way for the other one? That in that moment is what you are giving greater worth and glory and honor and weight to. That in that moment is what you are worshiping. 
Another thought about glory is that it's hardwired into our DNA that we are meant to be a people of glory. We're meant to give worth to things. That's why we post so much of what we do on on Snapchat or Instagram. It's why we take pictures of food or take pictures of celebrities or take pictures of, 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 of mountains or things that we think are glorious because that's our way of declaring the glory and the worth and the weightiness of something that this cannot be contained within me because glory always wants to speak of the things that we consider to be glorious. So if you say that God is glorious, is there an uncontrollable desire to speak about the thing, the one that you consider to be glorious? Because if you look at the things that you say and the things that you do and the things that you talk about, the things that's most weighty to you is the thing that you and I worship. And here's our problem, that we are often blinded from seeing the things that are truly weighty and glorious because we're looking at things of lesser glory. There is a way in which we have a strong tendency to be blinded by the majestic for the sake of the mundane. Friday night, Friday night, Olivia had come home from from, uh, being at the girls' lock-in. It was the Olympic opening ceremony. I DVR'd it because I thought that uh, she wanted to watch it. We could watch it together, watch uh, the Parade of Nations and, and all. And so we're sitting there watching, and the American team was about to come out. And so Olive said to me, who's the biggest star of the American? We were just talking about who would hold the flag. And we surmised it would be Michael Phelps, and it was. And, and then she was talking about the basketball team. She said, who's the best player? Who's the star of the American basketball team? And I said, I think it's probably, who would you guys say? LeBron's not playing, is he? Is he playing? He's not playing, right? Um, Kevin Durant, yeah. So I said, I think Kevin Durant. And so as we're watching the the, the American team come in, uh, for like a couple minutes, we see Kyrie Irving, oh, Kyrie, Carmelo Anthony, oh, look at Carmelo. Oh, there's the Marcus Cousins. We're seeing all these people. She's like, where's Kevin Durant at? Where's KD at? (laughs) Like, where's my man at? Where is he? We couldn't find him. And so as we're watching, I see all these other players, but I don't see Kevin Durant. And then there's one split second, Olive said, there he goes, there's Kevin Durant. And I said, where? I didn't see him. And so I rewound it, and I said, I still didn't see Kevin Durant. All that I saw, okay, there's this player in the American basketball team named DeMar DeRozan. Okay? DeMar DeRozan, not one of the best players on the team, but all he's doing the entire time, he's got his cell phone out, and he's like taking selfies of himself, right? Taking selfies, and then he bumps into someone. Hey, yo, come over here. You can watch it if you go on YouTube. And he's putting his arm around people, taking selfies. The whole time I'm just fixated upon DeMar DeRozan taking selfies. That's all I see. And so I rewound it, and I said, I still didn't see him. She's like, right there, right there. And I, I said, where was he? I didn't see him. I'm looking all around. I couldn't see him. Rewound it again. It took me about three or four times of rewinding the DVR to see him. And I finally saw him. And I said, oh, for a split second, there goes Kevin Durant in all of his glory. The reason I couldn't see him was because I was so fixated upon the mundane DeMar DeRozan taking his selfies that I couldn't see the glory of the one who really deserved to be seen. We have a way of doing that too, don't we? We have a way of being blinded to the things that really matter for the sake of things that really don't. What's weighty in your life today? What are you giving your time to? Some of us, it's videos. 
Others of us, it's video games. Others of us, it's reading things on the Internet that are inconsequential. And I'm not saying these are bad things, but, you know, I I heard this recently. The neutral things of earth have a way of robbing us of the best things of heaven. And when we as followers of Christ are seeking to live 100% maximizing our lives for the glory of God, when these things keep us from giving 100% so that we can only give 50% to God, then the mundane has become an enemy of the majestic. Then the neutral has become an enemy of the best that God has for us. Nothing wrong with watching a little bit of TV. Nothing wrong with playing a little bit of games. But if these things are keeping us from living fully, wholeheartedly for Jesus. It's okay if you think that living for half-hearted for God is, is okay, then you can say that. But if you're saying and you're wanting to live full-on for the glory of God, then we have to examine the way that we're living life. Because whatever is weightiest in our lives is the thing that we're ultimately worshiping. That's the first thing. Second thing that we see, God is the weightiest and his glory changes us. God is the weightiest and his glory changes us. So David is saying, okay, we've got this way of being blinded from the majestic because for the sake of the mundane. And so what is he doing in verses 1 and 2? He's calling people. He's saying, ascribe. In other words, give to the Lord, almighty ones. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give him the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, we need to give God the glory. We don't need to give Pikachu our glory. We don't need to give uh, these singers all of our glory. We don't need to give all of these other things that we're pursuing all of the glory that we give. We need to give God the glory. It's like David is sitting at a, a table. You guys are eating dinner. We're all eating dinner, okay? So 150 of us are eating dinner, and, uh, and we say, okay, let's just split the bill 150 ways. And so uh, here's Joey. Joey pays for the bill, and I'm the bone collector, so I'm going to everybody. Hey, everybody, give Joey six bucks. Give Joey six bucks. Why do we have to give him six bucks? Because that's what's due him. Because you owe him. That's what, he's, that's what, is, that's what we owe. Right? That's what our due is. Because that's what he deserves. Here's David. He's going around telling everybody, hey, give God the glory due his name. Give God what's due to him. Because we were made for God. We're made for God. Not, but a lot of times, giving Joey six bucks, we don't want to do that. Because we don't want to pay for things. But what David is saying, but here, when we give God what's due his name, I'm telling you to do something that you were ultimately created to do. Therefore, this is what gives you the greatest joy. I'm telling you to do this not for the sake that because God needs you, because he's some like uh, insecure megalomaniac who needs you. Oh, praise me, praise me. You feed off the praise of people. No. The reason God calls us to give glory to him is not because he needs it, but because we need it. Because we're enslaved by giving glory to lesser things that don't really matter, that we're kept from seeing the thing that really does matter, the thing that will give us joy when we declare its wonder and its glory and its worth. So why is it then that he says, Almighty, why is he talking to the heavenly beings? Why is he telling the angels to give God praise when they're already doing that? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Day and night, the angels around the throne declare the greatness of God. Why does he tell them who are already doing that, that they should keep on doing that, that they should do that? 
because he realizes on earth that to call mere mortals to the worship of God is insufficient in order to express the greatness and the worth and the glory of the one in whom all glory is vested. So he's calling everything to seek the glory of God and to ascribe glory and greatness and honor to him who alone is worthy. And he says, I don't want you to be distracted. He's like Bruce Lee. Have you seen Bruce Lee? Enter the dragon. Okay, Bruce Lee is the greatest martial artist of all time. And enter the dragon is his magnum opus. And the magnum opus of the magnum opus is this line where Bruce Lee, right, one of his little disciples, he comes to him and says, hey. It, it, it's funny because it's not, it's not dubbed and translated. You hear Bruce Lee's actual voice, and it's really quite hilarious. He doesn't sound very intimidating at all. It's kind of like Mike Tyson. So Bruce Lee says, hey, kick me. <laughs> so the guy kicks him. He's like, what was that? He basically says, you're weak sauce. Okay, don't think, feel. And then he goes on and, and, and he gives us like one speech. I think this comes from Buddha. He says, he says something like, uh, it, it's like a finger. You know this? It's like a finger pointing to the moon. And then he slaps the guy in the head because the guy's looking at his finger. He's like, don't look at the finger. Or else you will miss all the heavenly glory. So many times we're focused on the finger that we miss out on all of the heavenly glory. And that's what David is saying. We're looking at the created things rather than what they're pointing to. So how did David come to this place where he began to realize that God alone is the most glorious in all the world? Because he saw a storm. Look at how he describes the storm. In verse 3, he just talks about this, the sound. The voice of the Lord over the waters, the God of glory, thunders. He hears the thunder, and he's moved and on. Then he begins to describe in verse 4 the same thing, the voice of the Lord. Verse 5, he begins to move from the sound to the effects. Okay? And he says, this is what happens. The voice of the Lord seen through the lightning breaks the cedar. Okay, cedars, especially the cedars of Lebanon, were the most powerful, massive tree in the ancient world. And so he's saying as awesome as that, as awe-inspiring as the cedars of Lebanon are, it's, it's just the voice of the Lord seen through the lightning that breaks it, breaks it in pieces. Verse 6, he makes Lebanon skip like a calf. Syrian, which is Mount Hermon, skip like a wild, young, wild ox. So he's saying the mountains, right? Did you feel the mountains tremble, we sing? Right? Did you feel, he's saying the mountains skip like a baby ox because of the glory of God. He's saying this is the power of God. It says in, in, in verse, um, verse 7, the voice of the Lord strikes flashes of lightning. Voice of the Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. So he's saying Lebanon in the north, Kadesh in the south. Okay, wherever you are, the glory of God is demonstrated there. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord twists the oaks. Okay, the oak trees are turning and spinning, strips the forest bare. Uh, it's, if you look down at the note in your Bible, it says, or Lord makes the deer give birth. Either you could translate the Hebrew, twist the oaks, or makes the deer give birth. I don't know what the original language is, but that's a vastly different translation. But he's saying God is so powerful that a pregnant Deer gives premature birth when it feels the thunder of God all around. And oop, baby deer comes out. It's the power of God. 
And as much power as there is in that, David is saying, in the fiercest of storm, that thunderstorm is just a finger pointing to the heavenly glory. What is it that it says it does in a storm? When you're in the middle of a storm, you're sleeping, and a massive storm comes, it awakens you. You can't sleep through a storm of that magnitude. Not only that, he goes on and he says in verse 5, this is what the, the thunder, the storm does. It breaks the cedars. It makes Lebanon skip. It shakes the desert. Okay, when God in his glory comes, he awakens, he breaks, he makes, he shakes, he quakes. All of these things happen and the glory of God changes us so that we cannot be the same as when we first encountered God's glory. You know, people who say, I don't worship God because I don't follow God because he's boring. You can never encounter God in the Bible. Of all of the expressions and all of the experiences, of all of the encounters that people have with God in the Bible, not a single soul looked and encountered God and said, oh, he's boring. You can call him whatever you wish. People will be scared to death. People will die in the presence of God. People will forever be changed. People will shake and tremble and quiver and quake. But no man, no woman ever encountered God in the Bible and said he's boring. If you think that your God is boring, then it may be that we haven't ever seen the glory of the true and living God because we're so fixated on the mundane that we have not seen the majestic. You cannot encounter this God and say he's boring and not be changed by a real encounter with him. It says, as glorious as you see the thunder, saying the voice of the Lord is the truest expression of the power of the glory of God. The voice of the Lord just simply speaks things into being. When God speaks, when the word of God is spoken, we awaken, we are made, we are broken, we are shaken at our core. This is what happens when we encounter the living God. John 11, uh, 43, this is a passage where where, uh, uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. you, You may have heard the story. Lazarus is a follower of Jesus. He dies. They bury him in a tomb for four days. They say, after three days, you've been dead. The spirit passes from you. So he's dead. His body begins to smell. And Jesus says, no, watch, check this out. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He doesn't do this hocus pocus, all this stuff. He just speaks the voice of the Lord. And let your word move in power. Let what's dead come to life. And so here in John eleven forty three, when Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, hands and feet wrapped, cloth around his face. Jesus said, take off grave clothes and let him go. But he says, verse 43, he says, Lazarus, come out. Why? Did they not know? Did Lazarus not know? Could he not have just said, come out? Countless scholars say that if Jesus had simply said, come out, the voice of the Lord is so powerful that all of the tombs would have been emptied by people responding to the glory of the voice of the Lord. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. This is the power of the voice of the Lord. 
right? Don't underestimate the power, what can happen when you hear, when you read, when you look at, when you listen to the voice of the Lord. God is the most weighty thing, the most glorious thing. And when his glory comes, we are changed. The last thing, when God becomes weightiest in your life, God gives strength. You ever feel like, this is great about the Psalms. Psalms meet us where they are. You ever feel like you don't have strength to go on? You look at what you've got going on this week. I know uh, some of our teachers are going back to school this week, and the kids are coming in like a mad stampede. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this week. Some of us are starting school this week, and you're fearful and you're overwhelmed because of what's going to happen. I don't know how I'm going to make it. Don't you wish for strength sometimes? Don't you need an extra measure of strength? I've used this illustration before, but none of you remember it. Uh, You forget everything by the time Sunday's done anyway, so I'm going to use it again. If you recognize it, then good. One of my favorite cartoons growing up was uh, Popeye the Sailor Man. Popeye, muscles would go downwards because he's so weak. Popeye smoked a pipe. He was a sailor. His love interest, olive oil. Beautiful young lady. So sweet with her bun and her nice Amish outfit, red top and black long skirt. Doesn't show any leg because she's nice and, and, you know, modest and stuff. So this is olive oil. Popeye loves her, always pursuing her. But the bane of his existence is a man named Bluto. Right, Bluto, if you ever go to Island Adventure, Bluto has a raft. He's got a, 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 a ride that you can ride on and get you all wet. But Bluto didn't like Popeye because Bluto also liked olive oil. And they would always fight for her. And Popeye would always get beat up. And the reason why he looks the way he does, he's, only, he's always winking like this. <laughs> he's winking like that. <laughs> so his, he got into a fight with someone. I don't know if it was Bluto, but we got in a fight with someone, and his eye popped out, and so he's only got one eye. That's Popeye. That's his life. And so he always fights and gets beat up by Bluto, and he always sees the love of his life go off with the enemy of his soul. And so there goes Bluto, and until Popeye busts out the spinach, right? And the song comes on, I'm Popeye the sailor man. I live in a garbage can. I'm strong to the finish because I like to eat spinach. And he squeezes the can and spinach comes flying into his mouth and he gets strong and then he goes and he beats up Bluto and he gets olive oil and they go off into the sunset and the cartoon ends with this shrinking circle and it says the end. That's Popeye. Sometimes I have longed for a spiritual spinach. In times in life where I feel like the enemy is beating me up and stealing my love and stealing my song and stealing the things that I long to have in my life, I wish that there was a spiritual spinach for my soul that gave me strength to be able to go on another week, another month, another year, 10 years. Psalm 29 tells us that there is such a thing. Verses 1 and 2 None of you are Hebrew scholars, not as much as I know. But if you are, then you can fact check me. Verses 1 and 2 in the Hebrew are 16 words. Hebrew poetry, 16 words. Verses 11 and 12 are 16 words in the Hebrew poetry. 
1 and 2, 16 words. 11 and 12, 16 words. I'm sorry, 10 and 11, okay. 16 words. The Lord is the indirect object of 1 and 2. He is the subject in 10 and 11. It says, ascribe, give strength to the Lord in verses 1 and 2. In 10 and 11, it says, the Lord gives strength in 10 and 11. In other words, what is it saying? At the beginning, we're a people in need of God. At the end, God is giving us strength. What is he saying? He says, when we see the glory of God, and we put him first in our lives. We worship him in all of its fullness. God gives us the strength that has been given to him in our praises. And he pours that into our lives in order that we might live the kind of life that he wants us to live. Verse 1, ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Give him the honor, give him the praise, give him the strength. Acknowledge that he's the strength. Verse 11, the Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Saying, as you encounter the glory of God in the storm and in the voice of the Lord, and you declare that he is the weightiest thing in your life, God pours strength into your life in a way that you so desperately need. Are you longing for, lacking for strength in your life to live in obedience to him? Are you longing for the strength in order to do what's right, even when it feels wrong? Are you longing for the strength to honor your boyfriend, girlfriend, to live in purity, but you can't, you keep on struggling? Put God first. He is the weighty one, not him, not her, not these other things in life. When we put God first in our lives, when he becomes the weightiest one, he gives strength and he gives peace to his people in our times of need when we recognize who he is. Throughout Scripture, when God shows up at different points, He manifests Himself oftentimes in the form of an earthquake. Why? Here's this principle again. The things of greater glory okay, always displace the things of lesser glory. So in an earthquake... God, in his visitation to earth of greatest glory, comes and he shakes the earth as his way of saying, the glorious one is here. And throughout scripture, we see earthquakes that show the greatness of God has come to this earth. But where do we see the voice of the Lord, the glory of God in its pinnacle? I'll tell you where in Matthew's gospel at the end, In Matthew 27, you can hear this in Matthew 27, verse 51. The death of Jesus, when Jesus died, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, top to bottom. And here's what it says. The earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open because there God was declaring glory over the earth. Chapter 28, the resurrection. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Verse 2, chapter 28, there is a violent earthquake. Why? Because in the cross and in the resurrection, we see the glory of God and the voice of God speaking the glory of his son in a way never before seen in this world. 
earthquakes, just a finger pointing to the glory of God. But here you see it manifest for all to see. Herein is the glory of God. Behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulders. There's the glory of God. In the resurrection, the tomb breaks open. Jesus rises to life. There you see the glory of God. And the only appropriate response, verse 9, and in the temple, the people's one word cry in seeing the glory of God, the beauty of God, the majesty of God, the weight of God, is in the temple, the people cry, glory. My friends, what is the weightiest thing in your life? What have you been giving your glory to? What have you been saying is the most worthy thing in your life? What is it that you are worshiping? I'm not talking about the words that you sing. I'm We're talking about what is the weighty thing in your life, right? What are the things in your life that you rearrange your schedule for? The things in your life that you push aside the things, other things for? If that glory is not God, then you will find yourself lacking strength and you will find yourself lacking peace. This is what Psalm 29 tells us. Every earthly glory... Right? Everything that gets you excited has a form of glory in it. But can I tell you that it's just a finger pointing to the glory of the infinitely greater one, our God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Can we spend a few moments praying right now? What's been your glory? Money? Been your glory? That relationship? What's the weighty thing in your life? The praise of people? To be loved by the boys in school, to be loved by the girls at church. What's your glory? What's the weightiest thing, the most important thing, the most significant thing in your life? What are the things in your life that you are declaring glory over? Let's spend a few moments repenting of our sins. Saying, Lord, I've traded your glory for lesser things. Have mercy on me. Cleanse me. Forgive me. Wash me so that I might be able to glory in you. And declare that your worth is the only worth that matters. Let's pray together for a few moments. Surrendering to the Lord. Asking that he would be made known to us. Lord, I want to see you in your glory. Help me to behold you in your power. Let's pray for a couple moments like that. Pray prayers of confession, repentance. Especially if you're going to come to this table of grace. If you've been baptized or confirmed. Let's spend a couple moments in prayer. And I'll uh, pray for us and then we'll continue worship the Lord together.
Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the God of all glory. Every other thing that we give glory to ultimately enslaves us. Maybe some of us are enslaved. Yeah, maybe some of us are enslaved to pleasure. Some of us are enslaved still to video games that we play. Some of us are enslaved to shows that we watch on Netflix. Some of us are enslaved to the adoration of people. Some of us are enslaved by the laughter that people give to us when we do something funny. The nature of every glory on this earth is that it enslaves us because they were not what we were meant to live for. But you, oh God, when we glory in you, you're the only master, the only glory that actually sets us free. Not only to do whatever we want to do, but to not do what we don't want to do. That's true freedom. And it's found only in you. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to find our glory in you to believe that you are the best thing and the greatest thing in our lives and that in finding our soul satisfaction in you in worshiping you that we might find comfort and strength and joy that this world could never give to us thank you so much we love you because you've loved us first we pray these things in jesus name